Hello, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Malin, and I am super excited to be here with you. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about how to successfully sew with batiks, ideas for organizing your digital patterns, and then must-know tips for using a rotary cutter and labeling your quilt, and we'll explore tips for growing your social media accounts with expert Kim Nizwicki of Go Go Kim. So let's dive in. I'm here with Elizabeth Stumbo, the designer of American Patchwork and Quilting Magazine, and we're going to be talking about batiks. Now, batiks aren't new to the quilting industry. They've been around for thousands of years. They're believed to have originated in Asia, and batiks is a way of dyeing fabric using wax that protects certain parts of the fabric so those parts don't absorb the dye. It's a fascinating process. Um, I would recommend looking up videos of it. It's really interesting. And this creates really unique patterns on the fabrics. So, Elizabeth, we've been seeing some really cool things happen with batiks the last few years when we've been going to quilt market. So we wanted to share a few things that we've seen. And I think that people who are not batik lovers, they may be surprised by what people are doing with them now. Yeah, there's some great innovation out there right now with batiks, like beautiful colors that are happening and then um, added things too. So I think we were just blown away at the last quilt market by all the innovation and creativity of some of these batik companies. Let's start with Northcott. So when we were looking at stuff at the Northcott booth, they had some beautiful batiks. Um, In particular, there was an ombre um, batik from the Stonehenge range that just had some beautiful variations in the colors. You could, you know, buy one yard of their fabric and you could get so many different looks from that one piece in one yard of fabric. Um, And same, they also had a cool gradient strip um, called Colorfall that also had some beautiful fabrics um, happening in that beautiful ranges from yellows to reds with oranges in between. And it was just so pretty. I think for the first time, too, I was also seeing a lot of panels happening in boutiques. Uh, Northcott, they also had a collection called Vino, which is right up your alley, Lindsay. (laughs) You love love wine. wine. (laughs) Um, And so this collection had some beautiful panels in there. I remember it had, you know, some pretty grapevines and some scenery of a vineyard looking through like a stone archway. It was just very like Tuscan, beautiful Napa Valley inspired and it was gorgeous and something a little bit new and different. And then they also had a collection called Brushstrokes that had almost a look of plaid to it and it was kind of a more organic plaid but it was so pretty with that batik background. Yeah I think when we think of batiks maybe like 10 years ago what we thought of was layering of some colors and having one overall kind of pattern, um, maybe a little uh, watercolory or maybe like a little mushy in design. I'm not saying that in a bad way. It's like a very beautiful, like artistic effect. Mm-hmm. But now we're seeing really crisp geometric designs, a little more modern. Yeah, and really bright and innovative colors too, I think, that we yeah. haven't seen in a while. We can link to the fabrics we're talking about so you can kind of take a look and yeah, you see for yourself. really need to see them for yourself. They're just amazing. Um, and then we were also noticing some metallics being added to batiks that was just beautiful. Michael Miller had a collection of metallic batiks that were beautiful, so be sure to look at those also. And then um, Hoffman had some really intricate designs with just multiple layers of colors and really pronounced fun shapes. So another beautiful collection and innovation for batiks. Yeah, and I think just overall, we were seeing a lot of fabric companies take on batiks. Before it was just a few that were doing them really well, and now almost all of them are doing it. So there's just a range of them out there. Mm -hmm. They're really cool. Um, I just made my first 
quilt out of batiks because I was so inspired to try with these more modern fabrics because uh, other batiks are not really my style, but these modern ones really were. So I made a little table runner out of some. <laughs> so pretty. So sewing with batiks is different than working with cottons. So we have some tips for you if you decide to take on batiks as a new challenge. Right. So batiks have actually a tighter weave that helps them to stand up in that initial dyeing process. So because they have a tighter weave, it can cause a little bit of different challenges when sewing with them. So we would recommend sewing with a sharper or finer needle than you might use for quilting cottons. So such as a 70-10 needle. Um, just make sure that the needle will glide through the fabric easily without punching really big holes. Yeah, and with your thread choice, you want to make sure to choose a finer thread, such as a 50 or 60 weight, especially if you find that your stitches are showing too much. Yep. And then in the dyeing process, batiks have already shrunk a quite a bit. So you'll tend to get less shrinkage with batik quilts. And we all know that pre-washing can be kind of a controversial subject. But maybe just keep this in mind if you like to mix batiks and cottons together because there are some beautiful patterns and designers out there who like to mix batiks and prints and cottons. So if you are one that wants to try this, maybe just find that it's best to pre-wash your cottons. Yeah, and pre-washing is a personal preference with batiks, and many batik companies recommend hand-washing and lying flat to dry. It's always good to test the fabric for dye fastness and use color catchers when you wash your quilts to catch excess dye. Because the wax that creates the design sinks into the fabric, you may find that both sides look similar rather than there being a clear right or wrong side. And this can be really cool about batiks. I love that facet of them. Um, but so if you look closely, you may find that one side has a little less blurring around the edges of the pattern. So you may just have a personal preference on which side you think is the right side. Or you can just have it be low stress and not worry about it at all. I love that too. <laughs> And then just because batiks have a tighter thread weave, they fray less, and they're really great choice for applique because of that reason. Yeah, they are beautiful in applique quilts. And then also just consider the design of the batik print that you're using when you are laying out the pattern so you can help maximize that fabric style. You know, in these um, fabrics that we mentioned that have the ombre and the beautiful like watercolor effects changing between the, the colors, you can really get multiple looks out of this fabric print. But if you're trying to be consistent and just maybe think about that as you're laying it out and cutting your pieces, if you do want that consistent area of the same color and tone. Yeah, and usually because batiks have multiple kind of colors and designs happening at once, you don't, you might want to be a little pickier if you're looking to get more of one color than another when you're cutting so that you're not stuck with like pieces that look much different than you were expecting. So we hope that this inspires you to try batiks and take a look at what's out there if you have never explored them. They're really fun and we're excited to see how people start using them and how how they innovate in the future. Yeah, it'll be fun to see what new stuff we'll find at Quilt Market this fall in batiks. Yeah. We'll be back after this quick ad break. I'm back with Elizabeth for Ask Us Anything, a segment where we answer your most pressing quilting questions. So we have a great question here today from Anne Roman. She asks, any suggestions on how to organize patterns, blog posts, tips, quilt lists, etc., that you keep and store digitally? This is a really interesting one. We know. Yeah, very interesting. I love this question. Yeah, and it's something we probably haven't ever got asked before just because quilters 
are really tangible people and we like all the printouts. And I mean, we've dealt with people having too many books and printed patterns. Definitely. And, uh, that but kind I of think stuff. PDFs and downloadable patterns are becoming more and more popular. I know I've purchased a couple over the years and you know, you always worry, like, what if I lose this PDF? What if I lose my printout? So I think this is a very relevant question. Yeah, so hopefully we have some good tips for you. (laughs) Yeah, so the first one would just be to figure out where you want to save this on your computer. Go ahead and create a folder specifically for your quilt patterns. Um, And then create different subfolders and label those subfolders just kind of based on maybe whatever it is that you would use to search for these patterns by, whether it's by size, occasion, types of fabric, maybe even where you downloaded it from. Um, So you can really make the main folders and then categorize them further for easy searching. Yeah, and I think the key to this is thinking like if you were going to Google this pattern, how would you search for it? And so are you thinking of like, are you looking for a holiday quilt? Is that something that you save patterns for? Is it, you know, baby quilts because you make a lot of those for friends? So thinking about these big categories could help you narrow it down into different folders, and that should help you find a little more easily what Mm -hmm. you're looking for. And then another idea is to go ahead and rename the file. So instead of it just being called like stars, scrappy quilt, go ahead and if you purchased it for a specific reason, like, um, you know, Andrew's wedding quilt, go ahead and rename it. um, So you remember exactly what that purchase was for. And then that will probably help you remember years down the road, if you want to remake that quilt, what, you know, what it was purchased for. So you can remember. Yeah. And if you don't want to rename the file, some computers let you add like notes to different files, like in the kind of metadata. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't, you can just ignore this part. (laughs) Um, But that could just be a good way to help do it more. Because I know a lot of times when you download a pattern, there is a specific reason you love it and that you're downloading it. I mean, maybe it uses layer cakes and you have a pile of them that you've been meaning to use, or maybe it's a great scrappy quilt that you thought would be perfect for using your scraps. Maybe it's for a baby shower, like Elizabeth mentioned earlier. So making these extra little notes can spark when you're looking through the folders of what the original intention was. Yep. And then lastly, for kind of her um, part of her question about social media and saving inspiration, um, I know that a lot of these social media programs like Facebook and Pinterest and Instagram, they all have ways that you can save and categorize those posts. So if you're afraid of them getting lost in your feed and you'll never remember where you first saw that, a lot of these programs have that built into them. Um, I know Lindsay really changed my life when she told me that you could save things into collections and Instagram. Before this, I was just screenshotting everything and trying to remember where it came from. And now I can save it into a collection and search that way. Yeah. And And my tip about this, too, is I know a lot of us like to save every single thing and it takes up space on your computer. You can find this information again. So if you haven't, like if you're saving things on your computer that are blog posts you've saved or, you know, little handouts here and there. If you've not looked at them and you don't reference them and you maybe haven't used the tips and put them into practice, it may not be that important to you. And if you ever need to know this information again, could you just find it by quickly searching online for it? That can help you cut down on some of what you're saving and some of what you have to weed through every time you you do it. Yep. Great ideas. So thanks for that question. Next is a reader tips a segment where we share your best quilting advice to common quilting struggles. 
This week, we're going to explore a few options for labeling your quilts. So this first tip was submitted by Kim Bartholomew of Mapleton, Minnesota. She says, on each quilt that I make for my granddaughter, I applique a label that incorporates her traced hand and makes a cute label, and it's fun for her to compare the size of her hand as she grows. That's a really cute idea, Kim. The next tip is from Sue Milan from Albuquerque, New Mexico. She says, I buy doilies, many of which have lace and gorgeous embroidery, at antique shops to use as labels. I back them with white flannel, then hand embroider or free motion quilt my information. Wow, that sounds really beautiful. The next tip is from Marion Meyer of Bridgewater, New Jersey. She says, I hang my quilts from clothes hangers with the fronts folded to the inside. To easily identify each quilt, I label a tag with the quilt pattern, size, year made, description, and photo, then tie the tag around the hanger's neck with a ribbon. That's a really great idea for keeping things organized, especially because it's great to store your quilts with the top of the quilt folded inside so that it avoids getting dust and any stains or, you know, just ripping anything. So it's easy to identify with your tip, Marion. Okay, Kathleen Twin of Las Vegas, Nevada says, Behind every quilt label, I include scraps of fabric from the quilt top. That way, if a quilt ever needs to be repaired, fabric pieces that have been washed and dried the same number of times as the quilt are available. This is just a genius idea. What a great way to ensure that the quilt will always be able to be repaired, that it will look consistent with the look of the quilt, and that you have saved those fabrics so you can replace them uh, as needed. So we love hearing these ideas from our readers. So if you're interested in submitting your own tip to be featured in our magazines or on the podcast, send an email of your tip to apqtips at meredith.com. Now I'm here with Joanna Bergerino, the editor of Quilts and More for Back to Basics, a segment where we share tips and tricks about a sewing tool or technique. Joanna, what are we learning today? Today I'm going to share with you two of my favorite tips for using rotary cutters. I recently coordinated a small group service event for the American Patchwork and Quilting 1 Million Pillowcase Challenge. The people there got to use rotary cutters for the first time, and I have to admit, I was a little shocked at some of the things that I saw. I feel like <laughs> as quilters, you know, we take rotary cutters for granted. We use them so often, so seeing people who had never used them before and how they treated them, and it was just a little bit of a surprise. So now you have your best learnings to share with us. <laughs> exactly. Um, so even if these are things that maybe you already know or they're very basic, um, they're very helpful in case you're instructing someone on how to use a rotary cutter, and we can all just use a reminder once in a while. So, also, if you're anything like me, you have a lot of non-quilter friends who ask you how to, you know, ask you to teach them how it's done. So, yeah, some things to keep in mind. And it's always the basics we forget about because we just take for granted how simple it seems to us. But if you've never used a rotary cutter before, it's foreign to you. Absolutely. So the first tip is that you should always cut away from you in one smooth motion and don't saw back and forth. Uh, and also, you should replace the blade frequently. I saw someone at the group event almost slice her fingers by sawing the rotary cutter back and forth because she didn't have good control over the blade when she did that. Oh, and no. then it almost slipped. <laughs> it got so close to her fingertips. I don't think she realized, but I was freaking out trying to stop her. Yeah. So, um, 
So yeah, just be really careful where your fingers holding the ruler are. Um, you should keep your holding hand um, pretty, you know, far from the edge, or at least as much as you can to keep things from, you know, if it jumps a little bit, you don't want to cut yourself. Uh, sometimes when the rotary cutter misses a portion of the fabric, it's tempting to saw a little bit at just that one piece, but it's really just much safer to replace the blade and then make sure you're applying even pressure as you cut. If you have to apply too much or too little pressure, you probably need a new blade. When you throw out the old blade, make sure it's enclosed. A lot of times I use the packaging from the new blade, but um, maybe you have a package that has more than one blade in it, so you don't want to use it, then just wrap it in some paper and just make sure that when you're throwing it out, you don't accidentally cut yourself. So I usually wait until the blade is consistently missing an inch or so with every cut, and that's how I just kind of know it's time to change my blade. How about you, Lindsay? How often do you change out your blades? I usually notice I need to change things first when I start uh, having pain in my like mm. hand or wrist or back because it usually means I'm pressing much harder than I should be. So that's usually my first sign that I need to <laughs> switch <Ooh>. things up. <laughs> that's a great idea. Plus, it can help save you from a repetitive stress injury, which is something that quilters need to keep in mind because they don't want to hurt ourselves. Absolutely. Uh, the second tip is to stand up when you're cutting. I know it can be tempting to stay seated, especially if you're in the middle of sewing something and, you know, sometimes you're feeling a little lazy. Yeah, it's definitely going to give you more accurate cuts if you stand up. You can get a better view of the piece and it helps you apply more even pressure on the hand that's holding the ruler in place. So, yeah, you just you got to stand up. Yeah, and we... Your cutting table height should be around your waist or a little higher. That's the most ergonomic height for it. So you just want to make sure that your table is at the right height when you're cutting because that will help reduce any pain or stress too. Yeah, risers are really helpful for that, like bed risers. Um, I'm pretty short. I'm barely five foot of that. So for <laughs> me, it's usually a matter of finding short tables, but whatever works for you. Yeah. Thank you so much for those reminders, Joanna. You're welcome. We'll be back after this quick ad break. Welcome to Getting Social with Jess. I'm your host, Jess Ziegler. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with Kim Needswicky, who is Go Go Kim on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. Those are her main three. Um, she actually is a social media professional, so I thought it'd be fun to get some insight from her. Whether you're a small business owner or you just want to connect with other quilters online, Kim has some ideas and resources to share to help you um, on your journey and to expand that community. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. Thanks for being with me today, Kim. Um, would you give our listeners just a little bit of a background about your personal life and your sewing and quilting life? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm just so honored to be here with you. Well, I started sewing when my youngest son, the caboose, the, the now in-house tween, was a baby. And I was on bed rest for three and a half months. Oh. And I was going to crochet a baby blanket for him. But for some reason during that pregnancy, I dropped all of my knowledge of crochet, all of it, every single <laughs> bit of it. I've never recovered it. <laughs> I don't know where it went, but that's okay because then I decided I still needed to make him something. And for me, sewing entered the scene. So I just started looking honestly at the blogs that were, this was 2007, and started a small sewing business making baby items and then got talked into starting a blog years later. Mm-hmm. 
by some friends. Uh, and from there, I started sewing more quilting items, which, you know, once you fall down that hole, it's, it's, <laughs> you kind of live it. Yes. <laughs> then I went to Quilt Market, my first one in 2012, and I landed my first industry job at that market um, with Orifil. And I was with them for about uh, four years and then needed to leave for a, a medical reason that has since been okay, thank goodness. And since then, I still do my sewing. I still do social media. I've worked for um, many different brands in the industry uh, behind the scenes, typically. And you know, sewing on on my own still too. I uh, I really I love everything about <laughs> sewing. Yes. Actually, I learned how to sew. The truth is, I learned how to sew so I could collect vintage sewing machines and beautiful fabrics. <laughs> it's my justification. It's like, well, I have all this beautiful fabric. I have all these fantastic machines. I really need to do something. <laughs> so, <laughs> but social media, I found as much as I love sewing. Um, social media is my passion. It is what gets me up in the morning and, um, continues to fascinate me each and every day. I love helping other people either by working for a brand or through consulting. Um, I also love to consult I've found. (laughs) And so I've just been, you know, plugging along, doing things here and there. Uh, What do you think keeps people from jumping in and learning how to, um, navigate the social media realm? You know what? There's a lot of shame involved in social media. There is so much shame. People are too embarrassed to ask Mm -hmm. because other people will go, well, didn't you know? It's like, no. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Anybody who says they're a guru or they're an expert, you know what? They're not because this changes every single day. And so if, you know, whatever I know today may be different tomorrow. And that's why, you know, for me personally, it's like, I have to keep up on these things. My spare time is spent doing nothing but watching seminars and reading information and uptaking enough of it so that, you know, I can be helpful to other people. Um, but the shame that is involved in not understanding social media is huge. And there's a lot of, of ages, you know, going on. Because it's like, oh, you're over 30. You know nothing about Mm -hmm. social media. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. And it really, it saddens me to believe that people think that, you know, because they're over 30, they can't utilize and thrive in social media. Because they absolutely can and should. Absolutely. And what's important is making people feel as though you are having a conversation with them. You're not talking to them. People love to share about themselves. I know I do. I mean, I, there are so many people that just, they want to be a part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) People love to share about things they love. They also really love to share about things that they hate. (laughs) And people will jump on that bandwagon. <laughs> oh boy. Like nobody's business. What about more a hobbyist maybe who just wants to build their community or wants to grow their following and they might not have a small business, but they still want to be a presence in the community and they want a bigger following or greater influence. Are there any hard and fast rules? It depends upon where they are and really what their their goal is. If if their goal is not to be in the business in some, you know, if 
if they don't want to be an influencer, if they don't want to work with industry brands, if they don't want to, I mean, the vision needs to be there first. Mm. Why do you want to grow? Typically, what I have seen is that people are building their numbers so that they can start working with, with industry brands. Okay, that's a good point. Either directly or in an influencer way. Hard and fast rules? No, there aren't any. I know people want to believe that this is something that can be done really passively. It's not. Mm-hmm. It is not a passive activity. And if if you were to do it just once a day, if that's all you can manage, then do that. Mm-hmm. If that's all you can manage once a day. Um, it depends upon where you are, too. I mean, Pinterest, the way I've grown other businesses is I did one from zero to over 90,000 and just... <laughs> A couple of years, but I was I was posting to Pinterest fifty to hundred times a day. Let me let that sink in for a second. <laughs> wow! Do when you're when you're working for these brands, I'm just kind of interested from um, a perspective of like how do you manage your time so that you can do the things that you want to do and still <laughs> and still. I mean, that's just one platform. That's one platform. Yeah. Honestly, I I don't really have a schedule because typically when I do social media, I'm the only one doing the social media. I see. Um, And so I don't have a schedule and I do what works because every day is different. It doesn't matter what brand you are. Things come up constantly. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have an idea. I don't typically write things down. I keep it all in my head. So, you know, I know what's going where and then something else pops in. So then everything has to change, which is okay. I mean, you have to be kind of really fluid when it comes to social media too. There's scheduling, but then you also need to be a part of it. And the other part about scheduling that I forgot to mention is that typically speaking, when people schedule things out, they disconnect. Mm. They're like, okay, it's done. But But then they lose, then they lose the connection. Mm -hmm. It goes back to the community. But for me, you know, it's it's a always a full-time thing. It's always you need to be on. Um, and that's why I recommend, you know, if shops are doing it, mm-hmm. or small business, if you have more than one person, even if that other person is your husband, because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people yeah. do. If you start a sure. business at home yeah. and their husband is the one that works with them. You know, if you could have your husband or, you know, one of your kids, if they're older, uh, much older, I wouldn't recommend, you know, a 10-year-old. <laughs> I don't know. I like some really interesting <laughs> engagement. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, that might be fun. <laughs> Wait a minute. Please <laughs> <laughs> try. You know, that's the other thing is yeah. you can always try. Yes. I mean, my 12-year-old takes my photographs sometimes. He gives some major eye rolls <laughs> and he will give me grief. But nine times out of 10, he takes really good photographs. Yeah. Um, if I give him a general idea of what I need, he'll do it. And sometimes it takes a bribe, but it happens. (laughs) The best advice I can give is always work with what you have right now. Um, any of the people you see, you're seeing them and going, Oh, they're so successful. I can tell you about some of them, you know, they started with nothing. They started, I mean, even myself, you know, my first sewing space was a sewing cabinet with a Bernina on top and a broken chair. That was it. Mm-hmm. That was where I started. And since then, I've been trying to grow. But 
it's always using what I have now in yes. front of me. There's so many free resources. I call them free sources out there for anyone to you. Canva. Canva is the greatest thing in existence. If you're not a graphic designer, but you need a graphic design, it's free or very low cost. I mean, it is brilliant. They have fonts. They have visuals. Another one is Upsplash. If you're looking for free photos to use, they're beautiful. Cost you nothing. It's amazing. Free things. YouTube. Holy smoke. Yes. Learn how to do something. YouTube. YouTube is everything. And the best part about YouTube is it's not one person telling you how to do one thing at one time. It's a variety of different people giving their um, how they do it themselves. So YouTube is set up in a way that there are multiple ways that you can learn things uh, sure. from many different people. You know, glean from each one what you need and and use those so that you can go forward to that next step of, mm -hmm. of your business. Yeah, go play. I mean, that's that's another thing. Make social media your passion. I find that the more I use it, the more I'm absolutely just fascinated by it. It's amazing what it can do. Well, and how many opportunities have you had personally in the last, you know, five years as a result of social media? Oh, tons. Yeah. And lots. I mean, look where I am now. I'm talking to you. <laughs> but, you know, I did a blog. I was so honored. I got to do a blog for the National Quilt Museum. Wow. I was, I was just like, <laughs> I was overwhelmed with that. You know, I've done teaching gigs and I've been to market numerous times. I have met some of the most wonderful people ever because of my social media. I just, I'm really fortunate, but I didn't expect any of it. You, know? you just kind of, you be you and do your thing. And if you're doing it with passion, great things will come. I mean, really and truly. And that's for individuals, for you know, small business for larger brands. It doesn't matter. It, it's amazing when it's working. <laughs> Absolutely. And what I hear you saying is, you know, kind of treat, treat it as an experiment, see what works and see what doesn't work and, and just start. I, it's yes, just start and, and, and keep it up because, you know, the experimentation part is the best part of all because social media is an experiment. It's an ongoing experiment for everyone because mm -hmm. it's constantly changing and nobody's telling us the rules. And so we have <laughs> to go along with it, which is kind of fun too. Learning it new is. things keeps you young. Uh -huh. Yes. <laughs> it does. But with with Instagram, and it's on Facebook now too, the stories are really fun. If you're uncomfortable with doing videos straight away, you can start doing them in your Instagram stories and they go away after 24 hours. Or you can put them on your feed and if you don't feel good about it after you see it, you take it down. I mean, everything can be taken down. Uh, you know, if you're not comfortable with, you know, your makeup that day or you're not comfortable with the way you said something or you're not comfortable with the lighting, you can take it down and redo it. Nothing's set in stone. Nobody will hate you for it. And if they do, then they're to be, you beat They're not your people. People will say, okay, bye now. Doesn't matter. I will say with photos and video, if you happen to have a room in your house or rooms in your house with Southern or Western facing exposure, those are the ones to use. Good light. My Gotta get me that good light. Studios, yes, my photo studios are not in my sewing room. My photos are often and videos are mostly taken in my kitchen and in my TV room. That's where the best lighting is. Sometimes in my upstairs bedroom. <laughs> do what you got to do. 
How, how would somebody get in touch with you if they're interested in your consulting services or um, have other questions about social media? Oh, that's easy. Gogo Kim is my nickname. I've had it for many, many years. No Gogo boots. Although I do <laughs> want the, the vinyl Gogo boots. <laughs> Might as well just, you know, Own complete it. the I circle. Um, it was actually a nickname given to me accidentally by a 10 year old boy and it just, it was before I was ever sewing. So I've always been go, go Kim. So to reach me personally, you can email me at Kim at go, go Kim.com. And so how easy is that? It's great. And and I'm pretty much everywhere is go, go Kim, Instagram, Facebook, you know, and I am, um, accessible through anywhere. I mean, you can literally find me anywhere. Anywhere and everywhere. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Sleep is overrated. (laughs) Well, it's your job. So, you know, we all spend a lot of time on social media and it's not our job. So at least you're being fruitful with it. I tried it fruitful and helpful. Those are the, you know, my motto is be the reason somebody starts or does not give up. Very cool. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time, Kim. I really appreciate Uh, it. I am really, thank you so much for having me. I love, I love spreading the good word about how people can grow. Yes. Everything. It really yeah. is. Thank Perfect. you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, glad to have you. Bye. Uh, oh, wow. So many ideas from Kim. Thank you so much for that. I'll make sure that all of the free resources or free sources <laughs> are listed in the show notes. Um, but thanks for listening. My name is Jess and I can be found at Threaded Quilting on Instagram. I would love if you reached out and said, hey, have a wonderful day. Bye.